Hey guys, welcome to Those Murder Girls Podcast. As always, I am your host, Raina. This week, I have a badass episode for you. Those Murder Girls Podcast was beyond honored when offered the chance to host true crime author David Domine on the show to promote his book, A Dark Room in Glitterball City. This week, you will not only be hearing from me, you will not only be hearing from an amazing author, but making her audio debut is my audio producer, Jules. Jules, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Hi, guys. I've always wanted to say that. (laughs) So you've been working behind the scenes of the podcast for a while now, editing, researching, now reading amazing books alongside of me. I'm really happy to have you here with a mic today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm kind of terrified and I'm a noob, so I do apologize for any mistakes. Oh, no, you'll be good. That being said, I'm really, really excited because this is a really fantastic book. It is. It's such a good book. And David was so much fun to interview. So we both had a chance to read the book, A Dark Room in Glitterball City, and the author's real-life connection to this twisted story of He Said, He Said, Glitterballs, Love Triangles, S&M, Drag Queens, Drugs, Scandal, and a gorgeous three-story mansion. It was literally like a dream come true for me. I mean, all the drama with all the queens. And all the drag queens. I would never wish death upon anybody. I am not doing that in any way, but you will see the way that David was able to connect with this story is something unlike anyone else could. And as true crime podcast writers and producers, his connection with the story is fascinating. It's beautifully written. You guys have to read it. And at times it seems like it's something that just cannot be real. So we want you guys to be the judge. Now I have for you our pre-recorded interview with true crime author, David Domine. All right. So we both read the book. Thank you guys so much for sending us the copies. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful books. I love the feel of the cover. It's so nice. I usually take the paper covers off. Yeah. And this one, I was like, oh, it's so soft. And that's my 13th book. And of all of my books, that was the one. When I saw the cover design, it like took my breath away. Yeah, it's I was beautiful. not expecting. I was not expecting it to look like that, but I loved it. I loved the feel of the book, so I'm glad you you liked it too. Yes, and the pages are very pretty too. It's yeah. just it's a beautiful book, and I ha- haven't really said that about any true mm. crime, you know, books, but it really, really is. So why We're don't good. you tell us a little bit about yourself? We know that you do have 13 books in total. One that we'll be discussing today. A Dark Room in Glitterball City. Yeah, so my name's David Domine. I live in Louisville, Kentucky right now. Louisville, I guess, is my hometown. I've lived here longer than any place else I've ever lived. I'm from Wisconsin originally, but um, in 1993, I ended up here to go to law school. And I ended up in this wonderful neighborhood. It's called Old Louisville. It's one of the largest historic preservation districts in the country. There's like 45, 50 square blocks of old Victorian mansions. And a lot of people, they know about Savannah. They know about Charleston, the Garden District in New Orleans, you know, the Painted Ladies in San Francisco. But people, when you talk about Louisville, they don't think about beautiful old houses and Victorian architecture. So I moved here. 
And I discovered this wonderful neighborhood with all these old houses and this wonderful architecture. And I was like, how come I never knew about that? And so that is like where my fascination with the neighborhood kind of developed. And I ended up buying a house in the neighborhood. I lived there. The house I bought in uh, 1999 was supposedly haunted. And I'm kind of a skeptic. I don't really believe in ghosts myself, but I love ghost stories. Okay. I'm fascinated by the paranormal. But I bought this house that the previous owner told me was haunted. And I moved in. And all the crazy stuff she told me about started happening. In the started house. happening, yeah. Yeah, so I started wondering, you know, I don't know if it's coincidence or what, if it's psychosis or mass hallucination, but I had all these crazy things happen in this house that I bought. And we lived there for eight years, and I never did see the ghost I was hoping to see, but <laughs> all these weird things happened. And that kind of opened me up to the paranormal, the you know supernatural elements of the neighborhood. And- in the neighborhood where I was living, you know, there's like, like 1500 old mansions and wow. old houses, all from like the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s. And they all had stories. And so people started sharing their stories with me. And I started writing them down as a way for me to do my part to kind of, kind of promote the neighborhood, let people know about this neighborhood I never knew about. So I moved out of that house in 2008. And I was thinking about buying this other house right around the corner. And so when I was living in that house on third street, you know, in the early two thousands, I was a food writer. I was working on my first cookbook. I was writing um, restaurant reviews and travel and destination pieces for magazines. And as I was leaving my house in 2008, I heard this house right around the corner, the Richard Robinson house. I heard that they had the original wine cellar from when the family built it, you know, in 1898. And I thought, oh, I'm a food writer. I want a wine cellar. <laughs> yeah. And so I made an appointment with the real estate agent, went and looked at the house, which was like three times the size of my previous house. There were 12 bedrooms, 11,000 square feet. There were three floors, an attic and a basement. Just modest and little it, thing. <laughs> yeah. And it that's a big house. My house where I lived was like about 4,000 square feet with six bedrooms. That's a small house in that neighborhood. Wow. And so I went and looked at this huge house and it was a mess. I went down to the wine cellar. That was my first priority. You could see it was a wine cellar at one time, what? but it wasn't a wine cellar. Not anymore. Yeah. And it was just too much work. And I said, uh, no, thanks. And so my partner and I, we left and up the steps up the front walk was coming another guy and he kind of brushed into me and he like bumped into me and didn't even say excuse me or sorry he just like brushed right past me and went up to the foyer and he met the agent I didn't think anything of it except two years later it was the morning of June 18th 2010 I teach at a local university getting ready to go off to class that day and all of a sudden I was watching the news and a news flash popped up and this familiar looking house popped up on the screen, a big boxy red brick Italian house. I thought, Ooh, that looks like probably old Louisville where I used to live. And then all of a sudden a mug shot popped up and I was like, oh, I know that guy. And it, his name was Jeffrey Munt. That was the guy who had the appointment right after I did that morning when we looked at the house in 2008. Wow. It was 1435 South 4th Street. And it turns out 
Jeffrey Munt and his then boyfriend, a man named Joseph Bannis, Joey, everyone called him. They had been arrested just the night before, like late, late, late night, June 17, 2010. And police have been called because Jeffrey Munt, the owner of the house, was barricaded in a bedroom on the second floor. And he told the police to come because Joey, his boyfriend, was out in the hallway with a hammer trying to break through the wooden door and come inside and murder him. Jeez. And the police didn't really think much of it, but they came and sure enough, they found Joey with a hammer, like he was trying to flee the house and they arrested him. And in the process of questioning the two parties, which is what they normally do, separate them, try to get both sides of the story. Mm -hmm. They began to hear grumblings about somebody knowing something where a body was buried. And they didn't take it seriously, but one of the detectives decided, I better call around to just make sure there's nothing about this because Joey was telling them he knew where a body was buried. And with the clues he gave them, they called around and within two hours, they found out, sure enough, the guy he had been talking about, a guy named Jamie Carroll from the eastern part of Kentucky, he was missing for the last seven months. And that's what Joey had said. And all of a sudden, the detectives realized they probably you know, had something. And so they interrogated him all night long. And after 13 hours, Joey Bannis finally broke down and he told them where the body was buried. And guess where it was buried? In that wine cellar that In you the wine wanted cellar. so badly. In the dirt floor of the wine cellar. They had buried him in a Rubbermaid container four feet under, and he had been there for seven months. And so when they heard this, you know, they got a search warrant, they went and they came and they started to dig. And it just happened that that night, Louisville is one of the cities that has a contract with A&E for the show, the first 48. So their camera crew was in town following the police around that night and they filmed all this. Oh, so wow. it's like one of four or five national true crime shows that this case has been on and they went down there joey had drawn maps for them and they followed the maps this little corner room you know it was one of two rooms in this worn like maze of rooms that was the basement and they saw this area that looked like it had been dug up and covered again and they started to dig and sure enough four feet below they unearthed this blue rubbermaid container and then it was the remains of Jamie Carroll. He had been shot. He had been stabbed. They use a sledgehammer to fit his bodies inside. Wow. And not surprising, both Joey and Jeffrey were arrested. And eventually they were charged with the murder of Jamie Carroll. But the question was, you know, who killed Jamie? Why? And eventually Joey and Jeffrey both admitted that they had covered up the murder. They had hidden the body. They both admitted to that, but they both claimed the other had done the actual killing. And so in 2013, almost three years later, that's when we had these trials. In Louisville, they called it the trial of he said, he said, because they both blamed the other. They mm -hmm. called it the pink triangle murder because it was a kind of a gay lover kind of triangle mm -hmm. murder. And so there were separate trials. They both agreed to testify against the other in exchange for the death penalty being dropped as a possible penalty. 
And so Jeffrey went on trial in May of 2013. Joey was the first. He went on trial end of February, beginning of March 2013. And the prosecution argued that this terrible murder really was the result of the guy's kind of frenzied drug use. They were high on meth all the time. Jeffrey Munt had been working as an IT consultant right down the road at the University of Louisville. He was making over a quarter million dollars a year as an IT consultant, but he started missing work and showing up high, so they let him go. And so he had no job. There was no money coming in to pay the bills. Jamie Carroll, the innocent victim, as it turns out, was their drug dealer, among other things. And what happened is the night in question, sometime probably late November 2008 or early December 2008, they're not quite sure, but sometime around then, Jamie Carroll came into town and he had a a romantic relationship with Joey Bannis already. And Joey is from a very prominent Louisville family. He had a very privileged upbringing, but along the way, he got into drugs. And as is so typical, he was led astray and he had been in prison numerous times. But supposedly the night in question, Jamie Carroll had arrived in town. He was living in the eastern part of Kentucky at the time, but he had these outstanding charges, these warrants in Louisville and Lexington. And supposedly he was coming to Louisville because the next day he had a court date and the plan was he was going to turn up to court and do his time and come out and be on the straight and narrow. But the thing is, before he did that, he wanted one last night out on the town. And because he had hooked up with Joey Bannis before, he contacted him and said, you know, I'm going to be in town. I'm going, I'm going to turn my cell phone tomorrow. You know, let's party. And Joey said, yeah, and and Jeffrey's ready. You know, come on over to the house on 4th Street. And so Jamie ended up in the house on 4th Street with all these drugs. They partied and had fun all night and did other things. But then as things were winding down, supposedly that's when Jeffrey and Joey concocted the scheme to kill Jamie because they knew he was going to turn himself in the next day, go to jail. And they thought, well, he's going to you know, go to jail. No one will know that he's missing and we can take his drugs and money. And Jeffrey had lost his job, you know, so that would have kept them going for a couple of months. And supposedly that's when they killed Jamie and hit his body. And had they shut up about it, they would have gotten away with murder. No one would have been the wiser. Up. Yeah, but they didn't shut up about it. And so... The trials began. It was one of the most sensational trials that Louisville had seen in a long, long time. And the prosecution argued that they had killed Jamie because they knew he was going to go to prison the next day and people wouldn't miss him. They could keep his drugs and money that would pay some bills for the next several months. And that was that, except they didn't keep the secret. When the trials began, at first... It was kind of like they came down on the side of Jeffrey Munt. Jeffrey Munt, he was this geeky IT guy at U of L. He had never had problem with the law before. Joey, on the other hand, had been to prison like four or five times already. So when the verdicts finally came down, Joey was convicted of all the major counts, including 
murder and he's in prison today you know he got like 25 to life jeffrey on the other hand he only got eight years for his part and he was out on parole in like 2014 already and after that all happened people started wondering did the jury get it right because all this other stuff started to emerge. And it turns out Jeffrey Munt had been caught in a lot of lies on the stand. He wasn't quite as clean as he would have liked people to believe. Jeffrey has an interesting past, not quite as interesting as Joey, but all these weird things started to emerge. Like Jeffrey had worked with the CIA. He had been an assassin, had killed like over 30 people for them. All this crazy stuff started to come out. We found out that the house this huge mansion where they were living had been a sanatorium in the 30s and the 40s. Lots of people had died there. There was this weird doctor who was brought up on ethics charges and ruined because of what he was doing to his patients. The previous owner of the mansion before Jeffrey bought it, the family matriarch had lived there. She had been killed in the mansion. There was an S&M club down in the basement. Joey and Jeffrey had been counterfeiting money up on the second floor. I mean, there's all these crazy things that happened in the mansion. And so when I heard about this, it was like, this is the best story ever. I got to write about it. And that's what kind of got me hooked into all of this. Not only had I lived right around the corner, it was a place I had almost bought. And that's kind of what led me into writing this book. So I'm going to fangirl over you for just a second. The writing in this book is so good. You're so honest. We love how you incorporated very real issues. And then you brought up like pie, pie. pie. It was just, you, you're, you're very good about not just talking about the story itself and going into the trial and jury selection and whatnot, but you brought up very important vulnerabilities about yourself and like family dynamics of family it wasn't just a yeah and this happened and this happened and here's the next 48 I'm glad you say that because I don't know if you know but the book took me over 10 years to write and one of the reasons it took me so long was right after the murder and all this stuff happened I was like oh and you probably saw in the book, I still am a huge fan of John Barrett and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, like how he made Savannah famous with this murder trial and all the quirky characters. When I started writing my books, I was always kind of striving to capture that eccentricity and, you know, the quirkiness of any neighbor. You know, every place you go, there's weird things. There's little, you know, tidbits and cultural facts that make a place interesting. And so I always tried to capture that in my writing. But when I wrote this book, it dawned on me that this was like the book that I had been waiting for for years. It just kind of dropped in my lap. It kind of took me a while to write it because I was like, well, I can't really write this story until Jeffrey Munt and Joey Bannis, the accused murderers, talk to me. I can't really write this story until they tell me their side of the story. And so for several years, I was reaching out to them and through their lawyers, but they wouldn't answer me. And it was like seven years later when I finally realized they weren't going to talk to me. And I'd been putting the project on the back burner. I was doing all this research and stuff, but I finally realized, well, I'll build that into the story. And 
at that point, pretty soon it's going to be 10 years. And with that much time looking back, you can kind of approach the thing with a memoir approach. And that's when I kind of reshaped things. It wasn't just a true crime story, you know, straight nonfiction, journalistic reporting. I realized I could insert myself as the narrator and make more of myself as kind of part of the story. And what you're talking about with the family stuff and stuff, that's when I realized, well, I can talk about the challenges I had as a writer because after seven, six years, I was like grinding my teeth at night. My teeth were breaking because I was so stressed out. It was taking a toll on me and I had to take breaks. Every once in a while, I just put the book aside and I wouldn't like deal with it for the six or seven months that came next. And so that's when I realized that what you were saying about the family stuff, I could include that stuff kind of as a memoir approach to the project. Because when you write about real life characters and real people, you're going to open wounds. Of course. And you're going to, sorry, you're going to piss people off. And I did. But then I didn't realize if I included my own personal experiences, because I, I know what it's like to have a person accused of something terrible. And, and I know what it's like to sit through a courtroom trial and have your family name besmirched. And, and you um, talked about that very openly in the book. I did. And it was hard at first because at the time I couldn't deal with it. Even today, I don't know all the details of my family problems, but I included that to let people know I wasn't just sensationalizing things for the fact of sensationalism that I, I've been through stuff like that. I have had family members who, you know, my brother who committed suicide, I talk about this in the book, he went to prison for a terrible, wasn't a crime, but it was a malfeasance for sure. And so, as you said, I think when you include your personal story, when you open yourself up and you're vulnerable, which is very hard as a writer. I think this was the first time I really opened myself up just to let people know, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to sensationalize and capitalize on other people's pain and misery because there are other victims in this book. There are two accused killers. Their families are victims through no fault of their own. Then we have the murdered victim, his family, they're not guilty. And then all these people, you know, the friends and the family who are affected, they're all kind of victims of this terrible, senseless crime. So I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, I tried to be as fair as I could. I tried to portray all the people as humanely as possible. And one of the things is, you know, Jamie Carroll, he was the murder victim. He was innocent. He had a checkered past. He wasn't perfect. He was a flawed individual, like we all are. But what I really try to do is let people know that you know, he was a human being, and his death did affect a lot of people. What happened to him was senseless. Who knows what really happened? You know, we know what the verdicts, when they came down, what they indicate happened. If that's true or not, you know, we'll never know. But we do know that Jamie Carroll did not deserve to be killed the way he was killed. What happened to him did not need to happen. So 
in the trials, there was a lot of victim shaming. There was a lot of kink shaming and stuff. I was going to say, gay guys are so creepy. That chapter, you did such a good job at talking about the jury selection and how many biases and how much homophobia was obvious. So, And I hate to say this, I'm not going to mention her name. But she was on the prosecution's you know, advocate team, like the victim's advocate team. She was the one that reached out to the victim's families. And she's the one that said, gay guys are so creepy. And I was right behind her in the courtroom almost every day. And so this happened in Kentucky. And the interesting thing is in Kentucky, all the trials as of, I forgot how many years ago, they're always videotaped. So mm-hmm. after a trial happens, anyone as a member of the public, you can go to the judicial center in whatever county or like Louisville, where I live, Jefferson County, you can go and get access to the trial tapes. And so for me, that was a huge part of my writing this book. I had to recreate the courtroom drama and the scenes and stuff. And that took me like four months over the summer, just going back, watching these tapes and kind of transcribing everything. And the interesting thing is a In Louisville, in Kentucky, when you get access to these trial tapes, you do not only get access to what the gallery, you know, the people in attendance in the courtroom see, you get access to all the other stuff. When a trial happens, you know, a lot of times counsel opposes, you know, something, they object to something, and then the judge calls them to the bench and he hits us button and there's white noise and you can't hear what the judge is talking about with the prosecution and the defense. But the interesting thing is when you get trial tapes in Kentucky, you get access to all that stuff. You hear what was not available to you as a member in the gallery. And not only that, in Kentucky, you get access to all the jury polling all the, what they call voir dire. So you get to see every potential juror they polled and you got to hear what their responses were. Like, do you think homosexuality is wrong or blah, 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 all this stuff. This is the homosexual. And you got to hear all that stuff. Do you You think, I'm sorry to cut you. No, no, no. Do you think that the jurors were actually being fair or being facetious about being fair? And I'm just like, Okay, how many of the jurors were actually homophobic and just said they weren't? Good, good question. Each trial, they had like 150 jurors, like in the pool, and they whittle it down to like 15. Mm-hmm. I know of each trial, there had to be at least, I'd say 10 or 12 who were homophobic and they were hiding it in their polling. And I talk about this in the book, there's been research done and some people know if they answer a question a certain way, they will appear as homophobic. So they're not going to answer it that way. Other people, they don't care if they will answer it and they don't care if they look homophobic, but in each trial, there was a good number of people who were obviously homophobic. And some of them were trying to hide it. Some of them didn't care or they were ignorant and they didn't understand, you know, what it was all about for religious reasons or whatever. But that was kind of fascinating and kind of disheartening Mm -hmm. um, being gay myself to kind of hear that. So that, of course, was in 2013. 
we've come a long way since that's been 10 years, but still, you know, we're still dealing with that stuff today. But well, as a strong ally, it angers me to read that. And it's just, it's horrifying that it's still happening. And it's so just out there in public for anyone and everyone to see and hear. And it's not okay. And that's how it is, you know, and I'm glad to hear that because me being who I am and people not realizing who I was at the time, making those comments in my presence or not realizing that I was listening to them, it was, it was painful. I mean, that whole trial was painful. And the thing is, it was a gay thing. It was two killers who were gay or accused killers, I should say. It was a victim who was gay. And so they spun that into a more salacious thing than it was. You know, oh my God, you know, typical gay thing, you know, and especially in old Louisville where there's all kinds of stuff going on. And of course, at the time, and I don't know if you noticed this in the book, I include all these other murders that were going on at the time. Yes, Rainy and I were talking about this, about all the cases that were going on in the area. Yeah, like Stanley Nace, Gregory O'Brien, student Andrew Compton, father Stephen Pohl. The worst the worst we were wondering was there a reason why you included all these cases and maybe an underlining theme definitely you know because when jeffrey munt and joey bannis were accused of this murder it was found out that jamie carroll was gay it was you know and smashing someone up with a sledgehammer and burying them in a rubbermaid container in your wine cellar of your 12,000 square foot mansion. You know, that's kind of sensational. You know, there's a lot of good stuff there. So I'm not going to dispute that. But the fact is, they really hyped up the gay angle. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's old Louisville and typical gays and blah, blah, blah. And all this other stuff was going on at the same time. And no one was like, hyping up the heterosexual angle of all these other terrible crimes. So that's why I purposefully, when I wrote the book, I included all these other cases, these other crimes, these terrible events that were happening at the same time, just to show how people were reacting to homosexual versus heterosexual trials. You also did a really great job talking about good policing and bad policing throughout the book. You brought up Janet and the ID situation. I was just, uh, I all about that. Oh my gosh. I, I'm just, mm. I'm glad that she got her due diligence in the end, by the way. <laughs> oh, Janet, man, she was a piece of work. There was never any transparency with Janet. Like she always had this agenda. She was the perfect example of bad policing. Yeah. And so when the book was finally going to print, and this was all during the pandemic and everything was like haywire and we had all the police stuff going on and Black Lives Matter. I had touched on some of this stuff in the book. And that's when my agent, she's like, some of this stuff you're writing about is really timely. We might want to kind of highlight that a bit more. And so that's why I included a bit more stuff about what was going on this is where the Brianna Taylor stuff happened, mm -hmm. you know, and it just seemed kind of timely to include a lot of that stuff. And because I had my own personal experience with this one particular police officer. Yeah. So we did see an opportunity to kind of tie in some connections of what was going on at the time. In regards to some of the characters in your book, first, whores in hot pants. 
Candy is my spirit animal. She is amazing. Oh, I love Candy too. Please tell me she's real. Yes, please tell us that she's somebody from the area and do not tell us that she was a made-up character. She's real. I don't know if she's still alive. And my um, my editor and my publisher, my agent, we talked about this when the book went to print. After the last scene in the book, I saw her one more time in Central Park in Old Louisville, and she told me she wasn't doing well. No. And, yes. And I didn't press the issue, but from what she told me, I got the impression it wasn't looking good. Oh, no. And so I didn't force anything. I didn't ask her like how long and stuff like that. But I got the impression she wasn't going to be around for much longer. I was hoping for a candy book. Oh my gosh. A candy spinoff, David. How amazing would that be? Yes. I would just. Well, I, and I did see her one time after that. She was doing okay, but I haven't seen her since. So we took her out and that's why she's not in the epilogue because I don't know. Yes, I noticed she was missing. She's Schrodinger's cat, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And that was our interview with David Domine, the author of A Dark Room in Glitterball City. We highly suggest you guys go out, grab this book, hop on your phone. You can get it on Amazon, Kindle, audiobook, Audible, Barnes and Nobles. Everywhere. And we know you'll enjoy it as much as we did. Oh, for sure. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed this super special episode of Those Murder Girls podcast. And until next week, bye bye guys. guys.